Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you gave your apostles grace truly to believe and to preach your word. Grant that we might love what they believed and preach what they taught. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. On Good Friday, we got to see a picture of St. John, John the Evangelist, uh, John the beloved disciple, the dear friend of Jesus, standing there at the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we're told that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That tells us a couple of things about John, about the closeness um, that he had to Jesus and to Jesus' family. Um, And it tells us that Mary was in particular need. Uh, She didn't have anybody else that could take care of her. Uh, And so Jesus entrusted her care to his dear friend John. And the tradition of the church tells us that after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, that John moved to Ephesus and he took with him Mary and he cared for her until until her death. And in that time, he became a leader of, uh, and, and, and I think you could say he became sort of what would become, it was not yet called so, but the the office of bishop. Um, He was over the Ephesian church and the churches in that region, churches in the cities of Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Most of John's life, from the moment of Jesus' ascension back into heaven when he moved to Ephesus and took up the work of the church there, much of his life was struggle and hardship and difficulty for the sake of the gospel. He contended, almost it seems, his entire ministry with hardship for the sake of the gospel, divisions within the church, persecutions from without the church. And at some point we know That difficulty, that hardship, that challenge, that persecution led him to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos. It may either have been by Nero in the late 60s or by the Emperor Domitian towards the end of his life. It doesn't matter which it was really. But we do know that after his time on Patmos, he returned to Ephesus where eventually again he was arrested. He faced martyrdom. There is a legend that says that, that he was lowered into a boiling pot, but somehow miraculously survived. And he was the only disciple, we believe, who simply died a peaceful death in his bed sometime around 100 AD. But in the epistle, not exactly the epistle, but in the other reading, not the gospel that we read this evening, we pick up with John's story while he's on the Isle of Patmos. He was in exile on account of his service to the Lord, on account of his ministry of the gospel. He was exiled to this horrible place in the middle of the sea. And listen to how he talks about his time there. He identifies himself to uh, the churches to which he's writing. And he calls himself your brother 
and your partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Christ Jesus. John says, I, brothers and sisters, am with you in these hard things, the tribulation, the kingdom, patient endurance. Now, if we're honest, there are a host of assumptions about what life is like for Christians that, as a rule, we today don't share. John is describing the following Jesus' life that he shared with the Christians of his day, and the life that he's describing was a difficult life, start to finish. He talks about being with them in the kingdom. And yes, of course, they believed and they trusted in the fact that Jesus truly reigned over the whole world. But that trust in the kingdom required them to tightly cling to Jesus in the midst of tribulations. The only response to which they had was that they had to patiently endure them. Their lives were tribulation, though they had a vision for the kingdom, and the only, they couldn't make it go away. The only thing they could do was patiently endure. I am afraid that we don't even have room in our sort of conceptual framework for that view of life. We think that every problem simply comes along in order that we might overcome it and move on with our happy lives. That problems exist to be fixed. That hardship and pain are simply meant to be removed and not endured in such a way that they shape us and form us. But we're wrong in our assumptions. And so here we find John exiled to a desolate place. I mean, Patmos is basically a rock that sticks up out of the water. Harsh living conditions. And, and we believe that John took shelter in a cave, what is now today known as the cave, the holy cave of the apocalypse. It's a, a shrine today. But Patmos was hard time. It was banishment. There was a, a, a common, it was a common punishment for uh, religious, political problems. Anything that was considered a threat to the Roman Empire, you would be exiled to Patmos. And so we find John suffering for his witness, doing what suffering Christians do on Sundays. John says he was worshiping. He was worshiping caught up in the Spirit when he had this vision that he was instructed to write in a book and send it to the seven churches. It may be the case that this is a, a sort of a first example of a pastoral letter written by a bishop to the churches of his diocese. And the vision that he was given, that he was to write, is a, a vision rich with elaborate images and metaphors. John uses symbols. The vision was given to John in symbols because though these visions were not directly political, they had political implications. And John's vision, the apocalypse, what we know as the revelation to John, served to remind the people of his day and ought to remind us that the politics and the power of empires is always penultimate. 
And the politics and power of empires can never have a Christian's highest allegiance. It's apocalyptic language. John says so right off the bat. The very first thing we, we read was that this is the revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus. Again, that's another thing besides these life assumptions. This is another thing that's foreign to us but would have been well-known and well-received by John's original audience. Simply defined, an, apocaly- an apocalypsis, a revelation like this, recounts symbolic dreams and visions that reveals God's perspective on history and current events so that the present day can be viewed in light of history's eternal outcome. We tend to think, when we come to the revelation of John, that it is an apocalypsis, a a revelation, a mystery about the future. We we read it to, to, to try to find out what's going to happen in the days to come, but that's not really true. What it is, is it's a vision of the present from the perspective of the future. The image that comes into my mind that helps me as I read the Revelation of John is is those images that we used to see when astronauts would send back pictures of the earth from space and and things to us that look like great distances, um, like the walk from here over to uh, my offices at the cathedral, from that perspective are very tiny. In fact, you can't even see them. They're so minuscule and unimportant. Time is like that, in that same vision. What seems to us to be years and years and an unfolding from God's perspective is tiny. And so we're seeing in the Revelation all of history told to us in a kind of a story of several acts. We don't get the whole of the Revelation in today's reading, but even just from this first part of the first chapter, we get enough information to let us know what we need to know from the whole revelation. It's sent to those seven key churches, the ones I named earlier. And and seven is the number of perfection. It's woven into every facet of this vision. There are seven stars and seven lampstands and seven seals and seven trumpets and angels and plagues and bowls. Seven's all over the place in this book. And Revelation is the story being told and retold from several angles, but always we're being told what God has done and is doing in history. And what we find is that again and again, we are reminded that nations and powers have and will emerge. They will eventually set themselves up against God in demanding our allegiance and promising to solve all injustices and problems for us. But more than that, what we find here in this book is Jesus. We find Jesus, who is initially introduced as the conquering lion, but also and immediately introduced as the slain lamb who conquered by dying. And, this is the key, we're reminded that Jesus leads his people to conquer, but via sacrifice. There's no image in Revelation of Jesus and his faithful people, those who are conquering followers of his, and there's no single picture of them that is not a blood-soaked picture. Sacrificing to win their enemies. 
just like Jesus has done. And that whole book asks a single question. In the midst of the challenge and persecution and harassment, will the church compromise and capitulate, or will it endure? Will it remain faithful? What John calls conquering. You see, simply enduring the tribulations of this world is what conquering looks like from John's perspective. And so, in sum, Revelation is a word to folks who, along with John, share in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. They trust in Jesus while enduring all manner of hardship and deprivation. John hears a voice, a trumpet-sounding voice. It's a big deal. And he's told to write this stuff down and to send it out. But then he turns and sees, that is to say, what is revealed to him, what is shown to him, even at the very beginning of the Revelation. What we read is this. He sees Jesus, glorious in power, holding all things in his hands, majestic and powerful and splendid and mighty, All the glowing and fiery and shining language is just that. It's the message that having died and risen from the dead, Jesus is alive forever, triumphant over sin and death, and we will never fail if we follow Him. Jesus is so glorious in this revelation. He is so great, he is so majestic, that he's the kind of thing that you you would just collapse in front of and worship either in terror that is worship or worship that is terror. Just the kind of thing that the theologian Rudolf, Rudolf Otto called the mysterium tremendum et fascinans, that which is completely foreign, that which overwhelms and terrifies, but at the same time draws us to it. And so what we get in the whole revelation is what you're being asked to come into this evening. And that is one thing. One thing above all other things. One thing at the exclusion of everything else. It is simply this. Jesus. Jesus who reigns in glory no matter what kind of tribulation we're called to endure. Because the kingdom belongs to him, and belonging to him, it belongs to us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.